Good morning, everybody. Uh, so like was said just a few moments ago, we're going to be back in the book of Acts. Um, starting in chapter 2. And something I've mentioned uh, with each lesson so far, and the couple lessons in Acts chapter 1, is that these chapters I've heard considered the hub of the Bible. And again, a hub is like the center of all activity, um, kind of everything that all the activity is uh, coming, up, coming off of, or um, it's the force of where all other, all, the, all other activity originates. And that's, that's Acts chapters 1 and 2. Everything before these events really is looking forward to what happens here in the chapter we're going to be studying And then everything else that happens afterward and all the epistles that are written by the apostles, all of those things really point back to and originate in their force from the events in this chapter. So I've titled the series in these two chapters, The Beginning of the End. We'll talk specifically about the verse where that comes from in verse 17 today. So I'll save more comments for that until then. But just briefly, the idea is that this is the beginning of, of the final era of time that we are still a part of today. And so I titled this lesson Inauguration. Inauguration is a term we usually hear related to presidential uh, election. So like presidential inauguration is usually how I think we hear that term today. But the idea of inauguration is really just the beginning of a period or the beginning of a period of time um, and so really, this is, these are the events that are the inauguration of the final era of time that God had been working towards from the foundation of the world. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 13, and I'll read just the first 13 verses again, and we'll begin just like the last lesson, just talking through these uh, scriptures point by point. So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. So remember that Jesus, back in verses 4 and 5, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus had instructed them to go to Jerusalem and to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father to be given to them. And Jesus clarifies in verse 5 of chapter 1 and in verse 8 that this promise was that Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit from heaven. And really, these are the events where we see that promise now being fulfilled. 
They happen on the day of Pentecost. And I want to talk for a moment about that day, what the, Pente- what the day of Pentecost is. Back in Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 21, it outlines specifically what Pentecost was. But it's one of three major festivals that the Jewish nation would celebrate on a yearly basis. If you remember, the first festival that the Jewish nation would celebrate had already passed, and that was Passover, and Jesus was crucified on Passover. The second major festival was Pentecost. In Leviticus 23, it's called the Feast of Weeks, uh, whereas here it's called Pentecost, which is more of a Greek name. Penta means 50, and we'll see in just a moment the significance of, of that. But the idea of Pentecost was it was a festival to celebrate the first grain harvest. And then the celebration involved dedicating the first fruits of that harvest to God. And the Jewish nation would come together in Jerusalem to celebrate this, to dedicate this to God. It was celebrated 50 days exactly from the Passover. So in Leviticus 23, it says, wait, seven full Sabbaths. Uh, which Sabbath cycles would be seven days, a full week, Sabbath to Sabbath. So you'd wait 49 days, seven Sabbath cycles, and then after the final cycle, the day after, the 50th 50th day, is the day of Pentecost. So hence, Penta, 50, Pentecost, the Greek name for this celebration. What we see here too, and this is extremely significant, Jews from all over the world, would travel to Jerusalem both for the the Passover and for Pentecost. And from what I understand, Pentecost was so significant that there would be devout Jews who would actually travel to Jerusalem and basically they would live there for that 50 days and they wouldn't leave Jerusalem until after Pentecost was complete. You know, kind of like saving travel from going from Jerusalem and going back and going back to Jerusalem so quickly So there would be people very dedicated to God who would be in Jerusalem at this time. You actually see this in verse 5. It says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from where? Every nation under heaven. Just kind of as a side note, by the way, there's some providential things that God had done to make this possible that are very amazing. Back in the Old Testament, God at one point sent Babylon to destroy Jerusalem for its, for its sin. And what that accomplished is Babylon, in destroying Jerusalem, scattered Jews all over the world. The next ruling world power was Persia. And Persia brought the Jews who were willing to go back to Jerusalem, they brought them back to restore their religion, and they restored it with greater vigor, greater zeal. The people who were there loved God deeply. And then the Greek Empire after that gave universal education, universal language, and all of this was setting up the ability to spread the kingdom of God in this context. And then what Rome did as the next world power, so Greece established uh, common language, common education. Rome built roads that traveled all over the world and intersected in all the nations that were under their dominion or related to their dominion. And so people were very easily able to go to Jerusalem at this time from all nations. And the reason why there were devout Jews in regions outside of Judea was because of the providence of God in the past to set up these events in the present. All of that 
is very amazing. Here's another amazing thing. Jesus fulfilled the Passover. So if you remember, the Passover was to remember the exodus out of Egypt. You would slay a lamb, put its blood in your doorposts. And it was to commemorate how God had brought them out of Egypt and made them their own nation. Well, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb that fulfilled the Passover and all that it meant. The amazing thing about these festivals that the Jewish nation celebrated, these festivals were prophetic in how they pointed forward to new covenant events that fulfilled them. So Jesus fulfilled Passover, whereas these events are like a first fruit harvest of salvation to God. So just like this was meant to celebrate first fruits given to God and dedicated to him, here in this context, we are going to see the first fruits of salvation being dedicated to God in salvation at the end of the chapter. So, more specifically, the events themselves. What happened here? We see the Spirit, the promise here, being poured out with three signs, and I want to talk just for a moment about these signs and and what we can understand about these events through them. So the first thing, if you look at verse 2, so coming from heaven, there was this loud sound, and it was like a violent rushing wind. And so you imagine if there were Jews just in mass in Jerusalem, everybody would have heard this sound. And it seems implied that you would be able to hear and follow the direction of where this sound was ending. And if you look in verse 2, it filled the house where the disciples were sitting. So you imagine it's almost like, I don't know if it was like a sonic boom or, you know, just like an overwhelming sound of, of rushing wind that you just, you couldn't hear anything except just that. But everybody would know exactly where this, this sound ended up and it would gather everybody together. It would get everybody's attention. It was clearly something unusual and supernatural. And then obviously in verse 3, those who were present in the room, it mentions that these tongues, not necessarily of fire, but as of fire, appeared over those in the room, and then they began to speak in these other languages. But there was this visible sign that this promise was being fulfilled. And so there was this visible aspect to this with those in the room. It doesn't seem like at the point when Peter begins preaching that by the time everybody got there, that that visible aspect of this was still there. Otherwise, it seems like people would probably just say, well, look at this over their heads. Like, this is clearly supernatural. Whereas in verse 13, it seems like when everybody gathered together, there was room for some kind of doubt as to what this meant and what it signified. Nonetheless, they spoke in tongues. Something very important that you see here just in terms of clarity. People say a lot of very strange things about speaking in tongues in the Bible. Here it is very clear that speaking in tongues is not gibberish. It is not speaking languages that are beyond human tongue. Look in verse 7. The crowds were amazed and astonished The people who were speaking were Galileans, which seems like Galilee had the reputation for not exactly being a place of great education. But in verse 8, these Galileans are speaking languages that were being understood 
by the people who were from the region where this language was spoken. What you have in here is about 13 different regions, and I'm assuming they're mentioned because each region had a separate language that they would have spoken. So you have 13 languages that are being spoken by the disciples here, and the apostles particularly, and they're wondering, how are these Galileans speaking in these languages that they're not educated to even speak? And we hear them in verse 11 speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Something I was debating bringing up, I'll just commend this to you. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. Um, I'm not going to focus on it in the lesson, but Psalm 145, Psalm 145 talks about how people would one day speak of the mighty deeds of God in relation to God's eternal kingdom and God's eternal dominion becoming everlasting. And so I don't think it's just that this is convenient, that a godly thing has happened and so they're saying godly things, but rather that they are specifically saying the things that in the Psalms they looked forward to as also signifying the eternal dominion of God. Psalm 145. So what, how can we understand these things? Because obviously in verse 12 and 13, this sign was not itself the clear teaching, right? We don't see people's conviction coming from the sign itself. So these things that happened, they weren't saying that now these people are already saved, because again, sometimes not only do some diverse things get said about what it means to speak in tongues when biblically it's just languages, but people say different things about the pouring out of the Spirit and all of those things. Um, but what this was is it was a signal. And I think an illustration that maybe can really help in visualizing this is a fire alarm. And I have a definition of that on the board. Just being a signal that is triggered by an event, right? So a fire alarm goes off because it's designed to signify that something has happened. And what has happened is something that needs to be resolved by investigation. So somebody has to figure out what's happened here. And there needs to be a response. So for instance, back when I was in college for just a little bit, um, I lived in a dormitory. And the fire alarm would actually frequently go, out in the go off at the college dormitory. And when I would hear the fire alarm, my first thought, I wouldn't focus necessarily on the alarm itself, although that definitely signaled something, I would think to myself, who burnt the popcorn again? So I would think about the event that triggered the alarm more than the alarm itself. I knew I needed to respond, but I would think, okay, so what does this mean? And usually in a dormitory, it meant something fairly insignificant had happened, but you still get up and go because you just, you aren't sure that that's exactly what had happened, right? So when we hear a fire alarm, we understand that this is a signal that is telling you that something has happened and this needs to be responded to. There needs to be somebody, somebody has to figure out what's going on and there needs to be a response. That's no different than what's happened here. These signs are signaling to the people of Jerusalem and to us what Peter will clarify in this sermon here. And I want to consider a couple things before we move on with the prophecies themselves. For 50 days, the problem of Jesus' death had not been resolved in the consciences of the Jewish people. For 50 days. Can you imagine 
having an issue in your conscience related to murder and having nothing that can resolve that issue, even if you wanted to, please consider the law of Moses had nothing to resolve this issue. Going to the temple and making an animal sacrifice was not designed to resolve this kind of issue of conscience. You were helpless for 50 days to simply have this lingering conviction after the madness was over. What have we done? And then you're very quickly hearing that he's risen from the dead and even if you weren't a witness of his resurrection, just hearing the rumors that this one who is crucified is now risen, what do you do? Listen, if you want to hold somebody's attention, present them with a problem they can't solve, especially a relevant and personal problem. This was a relevant and personal problem that for 50 days God had not given them a solution to resolve it. It's brilliant. So what Peter will do, just as we talked about with the role of the Holy Spirit, the signal came from the Holy Spirit. The signal demonstrated that the Spirit had now been poured out. But the true role of what the Holy Spirit would accomplish here was just like what we talked about last week. Peter, in this sermon, is going to convey God's kingdom by communicating and connecting Scripture to convict the hearts of the listener. We see that in verse 17. When they heard this sermon, they were pierced to the heart. And what we're going to see in the sermon is Peter is going to methodically connect Scripture together. And he is going to put forward God's kingdom in a way that convicts them by these connections. So I'd like to spend the rest of the lesson really just thinking through verses 14 through 21 and the images that were presented with in Joel. Oftentimes, I will skim over this prophecy and more focus on the rest of the sermon. Some of the images here are pretty challenging, but I'd like to kind of rest on just Joel's prophecy, and then we'll deal with the rest of the sermon, Lord willing, next week. So I'll read verse 14 through 21 again. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose. And just really quick, you imagine if you don't understand some of these languages, you're hearing what sounds like to you just gibberish, right? But obviously it wasn't. And so just to, you know, dismiss it, they say, well, these guys are just drunk. Peter says, well, that's really not a reasonable conclusion. It's only the third hour of the day, verse 16. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So really quick, the rest of this lesson, we're going to be focusing on verse 17 through 21. And how I'm going to try to give greater clarity to these images in the prophecy is by using other scriptures to reference what Joel is talking about to give greater clarity and to enhance 
the points in this prophecy. I'm going to try to make sure all these scriptures are on the board for the sake of time and so that we can all see the, the scriptures that, that relate here. But just so you know, we're not, we're not going to get lost in making points from the side points in these other scriptures, but references will be brought up to support the images presented in Joel's prophecy. So firstly, Peter clarifies that these three signs that the people have either seen or heard, these are the signal, like a fire alarm, that the final period of time God spoke of through Joel had now come. So look at verse 17. This is Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. And he begins this quotation, and it shall be in the last days. So again, I've, I've referenced this in brief in the past two lessons. But the idea of the last days, scripturally, is not what oftentimes gets thought of or said about the last days. So again, 2020 has been a crazy year, right? And I'm sure, like me, you've heard people say, like, this is the signs of the last days. You know, these, these fires and the coronavirus, I mean, we're living in the last days and these are the signs. The signs of the last days are in Acts chapter 2. And the last days begun in Acts chapter 2. These were the signs, biblically, of the last days. Another scripture that supports this is Hebrews chapter 1. And this is, it's very helpful to keep these things in mind. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So again, when God in, in his word speaks about the last days, he's dealing with a final period of time. A final period of time where there's not going to be some grand new revelation given, there's not going to be some new event that is going to progress God's plan further before judgment. This is it. God giving the Spirit as signaled here is the sign that this is the final period of time, that all that we await for now is the judgment that ends this period with Jesus coming again to judge the world in righteousness. Obviously, the Spirit being poured out is a very fundamental distinction in this new period of time, but also in our relationship with God. So it says, In the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. So we're going to spend some time in verses 17 and 18 just trying to understand the language and the images that Joel presents here and trying to understand their fulfillment. So the first thing, though, is just the importance that the Spirit being poured out is a distinction, that this was an inauguration of a new period of time where it would create a new relationship with God, an enhanced relationship with God. The Spirit being poured out gives everyone equal access to the closest possible relationship with God. And I think really that's the point, the main point, of the images in verse 17 and 18. That your sons and your daughters, young men, old men, bond slaves, men and women, everybody, there's no partiality, there's no Jew and Gentile, Everybody is being given equal access, not just to God in some unknown or general sense, but everybody is being given closest access, the most intimate unity 
in fellowship with God. Some scriptures that I think point to this same reality. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says, And hope does not disappoint because of the love of God that has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 19 similarly says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So the scriptures communicate that our relationship to God and the Holy Spirit is it's a reality of our lives. It's something that is just a part of our lives. I want to ask you this. How much do you think about your relationship with God being possible because of him giving the Holy Spirit to us? And I think sometimes something that I've, I've heard that I just want to offer a, a caution with. I think sometimes there is a fear of sounding like people who we know are not teaching the truth of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they, they say too much or they're not really using biblical language and they're going too far. They're associating things with the Holy Spirit that just do not come from God's word, right? The caution that I want to offer is we need to be careful that in response to that reality, that we don't end up then saying less than what the Bible says or thinking less about the Holy Spirit than what the Bible says. Or that in our language, we talk less about the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I I commend that to you. In in Titus chapter 3, I think there's an aspect of this that obviously here, there's something special happening in the pouring out of the Spirit. And so this, in Titus, is not the exact same thing, but I think there's a parallel in the language that, again, is important for us to understand just the spiritual reality of what God says he does in our lives through the Holy Spirit. So Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Again, this is a marked distinction in the glory of a new covenant relationship with God in comparison to what was possible before Jesus came and ascended to heaven. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Notice the language here. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you were to go back and read Joel chapter 2 and 3, you would see that the days that Joel is looking forward to are days of restoration. They're, do- they're days of regeneration and renewing. That what God is going to do when the Spirit is poured out is he is going to renew what once was desolate and barren. He is going to make a land that was ravished by the consequences of sin into a rich place of great abundance where he can dwell with his creation again perfectly. And what we now know is this is fulfilled in spiritual truths through God sending his Holy Spirit from heaven so that our lives can be regenerated, so that we can be made into God's likeness once again and receive his mercy and grace through Jesus. So again, all of that is that the Spirit being poured out 
offers everyone equal access to this close relationship with God in the most unified fellowship. But the focus, I think, of Joel 17 and 18, notice the emphasis on God's will and God's word being revealed. So in verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, and I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. So everyone is not only given full access to the closest relationship with God, but everyone will be able to have a full knowledge of his will. I want to reference 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 as one of many references to this point that Jesus reveals the manifold wisdom of God. That if we know enough to understand the gospel, if we're convicted to repent, if we know we need to be baptized for the remission of our sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, so much of God's will has been perfected even in the simplicity of that response to the gospel. But in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. So just pause there for a second. Time out. Did the prophets of the Old Testament have a complete understanding of God's will? Peter is telling us that they didn't. They wanted a better understanding. But the reality was there were things that God was reserving for the time that Joel was looking forward to. And so he says, it was told to them they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Coveted truths that help us to connect with God in the most complete and humble way, heart-changing truths, converting truths, truths that exalt God's plan in Jesus Christ, truths that lead us into the depths of God's heart and his love, things into which angels even long to look that are reserved for those who are adopted as God's children through Jesus Christ. So everybody receives a full knowledge of God's will, but I think there's a principle in just the idea of a prophet. Prophets did not just know God's will intellectually. These were the most motivated people in Israel to dedicate themselves to sharing it with others. This is what we see in the book of Acts. We see people who are not just receiving information about God's will. They are rapidly, passionately spreading the knowledge they've received of God's will. And so something was going to happen where there would just be a incredible movement where people were not just going to know God's will in a more intimate and perfect sense. They would be motivated in mass to share his will with everybody they would come in contact with. The question is, does that describe you? Does that describe me? That I'm somebody who isn't just receiving the will of God but that I see things in a way that motivates me to share it with everybody that I can. So that's what we see throughout the book of Acts. We see this, the principles of this prophecy fulfilled in what we see in the movement of God's kingdom through the church. 
Finally, the language of judgment in verses 19 through 20. How can we understand these images? Because the science of what happened here was not in the sun and the moon, right? The sun actually was not literally turned into sackcloth or blackness. It wasn't that we saw the moon turn into blood either. So how can we understand these images? And I think it's, it's extremely helpful and very convicting, I think, to have a better grasp on how we can approach these things and under, understand them better. First, I'd like for you to consider that the language that is used in verses 19 and 20 is language that is used in other areas of prophecy. And I think that context helps us approach these images with more understanding. Uh, I put on the board here, I'll go back. um, One second. So it's Isaiah 13 and 34. We're going to look at as a reference. So first in Isaiah 13, in verse 1 of Isaiah 13, it says, this is concerning Babylon. And then in verses 9 through 11, it says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and with fury and burning anger. And in verse 20 of Acts chapter 2, it's quoting that Joel said, there's a day of the Lord coming, a glorious day. Well, in Isaiah chapter 13, for the enemies of God, this was a cruel day with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Notice this language, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. The idea is it's lights out for Babylon, complete end of Babylon. It's gone. And that prophecy was fulfilled not in these things literally happening in the sky, but that Babylon came to a complete end. It's as if the world ended entirely for the Babylonian nation. In Isaiah 34, when God is talking about his judgment against all the nations, his wrath going against all their armies, it says, He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. Notice this language. And all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. So you think like, okay, well that sounds like pretty much the end of everything, right? I mean, that sounds like conclusive. That's it. That's final judgment. But look how it continues. All their host will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. Edom, a literal nation that God was going to judge, but judge completely. It was going to be the end of the nation of Edom. So think about this. Is the Babylonian nation around anymore today? Has anybody met a Babylonian person or heard of the Babylonian nation? It's gone. How about the Edomites? Has anybody ever met an Edomite before or found Edom on a map to visit it? Those nations have been wiped from existence because God completely destroyed those nations. So this is language that's almost like a prophetic parable where God is speaking in ways that are trying to make very clear in images what we take for granted by its appearance. So again, this language is language common for God pronouncing great and complete judgment. But here it's not judgment just against one nation, but against the world. So consider, what if you were to actually see in verse 19, in the sky above and the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, while in verse 20, 
the sun is turned into darkness and the moon into blood. I think people, it's safe to say, would get into a sense of panic and wonder what's about to happen because something bad is about to happen. And these things that in nature seem so stable and reliable are now being completely changed in a terrifying way. And so the idea is things that we rely upon, things that seem so stable in God's judgment, it's as if they've been shaken completely so that we are put into a state of expectation and panic. I think a way of understanding this a little bit better is maybe with a visual, well, mental visual illustration. There was an event in Nevado del Ruiz. Um, That's in Colombia. It's where a volcano is. It erupted on November 13, 1985. What makes this unique is it was one of the deadliest volcanic eruptions in recorded history. What also made it unique is geologists picked up on the warning signs that the volcano was indefinitely going to erupt and they tried to warn the authorities and the residents that they need to evacuate because 100%, this volcano, it's going to erupt. And what they did, they ignored it. All the signs were there. In fact, there was a resident who had managed to live through the eruption. The resident who lived through the eruption said ash started falling from the sky. And they knew that ash was coming from the volcano. And they heard that it was going to erupt. And they said that people were playing in the ash. And it was to them like nonsense. Just a a fun time. The volcano erupted and 23,000 people died. And all of them were being warned to get out of the area. So let me ask you this. Were the signs there? They were. The people who weren't taking it seriously, their attitude and their thought about reality, did that change that they were living on a volcano that was literally about to erupt? So here's the thing. In this image, people may play around with God's judgment and assume it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. But with things that we've seen in Scripture that make these events historically clear as a reality that needs to be dealt with, the way that those who are of faith respond It's as if they have seen the sun turn to blood and the moon, or the sun to darkness and the moon to blood. We respond to God's judgment as if it is this reality. And we look for safety. And that's exactly in verse 37 how the people respond. What do we do? Tell us how do we escape. So you imagine, if you knew that absolutely judgment was coming, and somebody said, I can tell you, I can guarantee you safety. What would you do? Verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why the gospel is good news. It's not just that God is offering us a better life. It's not just that he's equipping us to do better in life or be morally better. It's that God is offering us deliverance from the worst tragedy. And he's offering us not just deliverance, but entrance into his kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is not just forgiveness, it is entrance into a new environment. For us who are saved, it's that we are living within God's kingdom, 
that we are living in fellowship with God and we are just strangers and pilgrims temporarily dwelling here now until the hope of righteousness is fulfilled. And so in verse 21, Peter will spend the rest of his sermon clarifying what this promise means. He is going to clarify who is the Lord that you need to call on. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene. That is the name of the Lord. How do you call on him? In verse 38, he will say, repent, each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And he mentions this salvation involves remission of sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so you may have heard in your past different things that people tend to teach about calling on the name of the Lord that you really can't find in the Bible. Maybe you were taught that by saying a sinner's prayer or something of that sort that you would receive the forgiveness of your sins. But we need to look for answers in God's word. How does God define his concepts, his commands? And so in verse 38, if you're here this morning and your heart is pierced by the truth of God's word, he tells us how do we call on the Lord to, to receive salvation and entrance into, into his kingdom? You need to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's how we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, we would love to help you in any spiritual way as we stand and sing an invitation song. <laughs>